Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of PL. We'll get to our guest this week's um, for this week's podcast very quickly, very shortly. But before we do, a quick look at the week that was and two items that caught my attention. Um, the first was an interesting development in the Mark Johnson saga. Um, now, regular readers will know I've had some problems with um, some of the actions that have been taken in this matter. Um, not least the Federal Reserve explicitly linking Johnson's case to a fine for HSBC during the original trial. Uh, This, as I said at the time, had all the hallmarks of a guilty until proven innocent, um, I guess, scenario. And now in a similar case in the appeals court, this is the same appeals court that turned down his appeal. The same appeal court has now found that there is an argument that um, the original instructions to a jury, which effectively implied that the defendant's motive to testify, as Johnson did in his case, um, was to do so falsely. Um, this is the appeal f- court found recently, um, undermined the presumption of innocence. So there's a couple of things there that I, I look at and think, well, how did this thing get so far? Um, <clears throat> I remain staggered, frankly, that the case has gone this far, but at the same time remain focused on Johnson. Um, and for a period, Stuart Scott, when he fought his extradition charge. Because there were so many people involved in this. It strikes me the case needs reviewing now, particularly in, the, in this new development whereby um, the instructions to Johnson's jury seemed a lot more definite and a lot more um, sinister in terms of guilty until proven innocent. So I think it's probably time for to review this case. Hopefully, um, this will happen and hopefully this time the FX industry will do a really good job of explaining its unique nature and, and explaining that well to, um, I guess, what will be an appeals bench or if it has to go that far, the Supreme Court. Um, and I guess while we're at it, I think we need to have a further discussion about pre-hedging, which was at the heart of this case for those of you, few of you that don't know what it was about. Um, HSBC, Mark Johnson was the head of cash trading. FX trading at uh, HSBC, and they pre-hedged a very large fix order from a corporate customer. So pre-hedging, I think we need to have a further discussion about because we saw another, yeah, I, mean, I should say yet another pre-hedging move at the start of the uh, month-end fix at the end of July. It's just an accident waiting to happen. Um, and I'm honestly not sure in such a litigious world whether disclosures will be enough to protect this. So I do think the industry, you know, there was a sense that the global code has dealt with the issue in as much as saying, look, as long as you tell the client and it's with the client's permission, you can pre-hedge. I totally get that. But maybe what we need to think about now is looking at a recommendation whether the benchmark has to be taken on a TWAP basis or whatever you're they're using um, needs to be taken throughout the pre-hedging period. You know, if you're executing an order, and David Mercer of LMAX Group has said this to me a couple of times before, you know, if you're executing the order for a yard, you're executing the, an order for a yard. If it's done in a five-minute window, it's done in a five-minute window. But if it's actually pre-hedged, that should be part of the benchmark setting process. So you get the full and fair value. Um, so hopefully, um, you know, Johnson's case turns out positive for him. And resulting from that, the FX industry can then maybe have a much deeper discussion about pre-hedging. 
The other thing that interests me this week was uh, the FIC Market Standards Board paper on machine learning in surveillance. This was released, and it's well worth a read, I have to say. Um, my column last week focused on one area, using market data, market data and supervising where it comes from and how it's used. Interestingly to me, the paper kind of at this stage went down the spoofing route, um, discussing, you know, you need to make sure that your traders are not pricing to a primary venue and then trading at a different rate elsewhere. In other words, bidding up on EBS or Affinitiv matching and then trying to spank one of the other platforms when everybody else moves their price up. So, yes, you could argue this is spoofing, but this is the problem. Um, spoofing is, generally speaking, something without an intention to deal. If you place an order in a central limit order book, particularly at top of book, um, you are definitely expressing an in intention to deal. Because how do you know you're not going to get slapped? Yes, you can try and bid up or buy up the Aussie to maybe get some commodity um, or some correlated market going higher. But guess what? You could also get given for your amount and it goes offered. So there is an intention to deal there. I think we need more focus on the platforms from, you know, on what pricing is down the book, because I definitely think there is a, a problem with, you know, we see it in futures markets quite often, um, where people are layering bids or offers into the market, but never at top of book. So they know they're going to get here. You know, equally on EBS, you know, there's a, a, a refinitive matching. There's a minimum quote lifespan. But if you actually place the order down the book, well, you're going to be taking care of that anyway. So I think what we should look at is length of time of orders down the book and also how many of them actually get here. You know, how many accounts will before the market trades there? Because, you know, in reality, if there's, an, if there's an intention to deal, can we really claim this is an attempted market manipulation? Because it's a, it's a difficult one. Um, one thing did become clear to me was the value and importance of the primary venues, though, because it struck me that that section of the FMSB report was very much aimed at FX, where there are two, you could argue, three primary markets. So, but the value and importance of FX is just driven home by this because of their no, no last look liquidity. Um, the paper recommends using a variety of sources when um, collating data from which to price and to check pricing. Um, the problem is in FX, if you look at it, you know, you've got reject rates going towards 15-20% on some other platforms um, that are like club-like. Um, how reliable is that data? Can you really use that data? So I sense that what may come out of this is another step forward towards a public FX market with more firm liquidity. If people are willing to buy data from firm venues, then surely those firm venues would eventually outperform. You know, again, this podcast a month or so ago, um, David Marshall of LMAX Group expressed the desire to get more into the market data business. You look at what CBOEFX has done with its firm central limit order book, you see this as being a way to build a firm um, liquidity book to get better data to sell. So maybe we are, we are undergoing a bit of a shift towards more firm liquidity in FX. I think it's a good thing. Whether it'll actually get all the way there, we shall have to see. Um, after the break, we'll be back with uh, this week's guest, Todd McDonald of R3, um, to discuss digital currencies, the enterprise blockchain technology. And coincidentally, of course, these are areas where you look at blockchain where everyone has access to this trustless data. It's where good market data is an issue, is not an issue, sorry, um, as long as the assets are actually trading. 
So we'll be back with our guest just after this break. Did you know that if you sign up before September 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. Blockchain is something that's revolutionizing financial markets. Um, I think there was maybe the odd false start in some people's, or, or maybe there was over expectations on the part of some people in the industry. But um, I think what's happening now is pretty much the start of um, what could be called a generational shift in, in how markets function. Um, and chief amongst that, I guess, is central bank digital currencies, which is a big topic at the moment. So I'm delighted to be joined by Todd McDonald, who's co-founder of enterprise blockchain company R3, who I'm sure many of you are aware of their work. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Um, oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I mean, well, it's great to have you because I think um, previously there have been suggestions that you know blockchain is a, is a solution looking for a problem. But I, I get the sense now that particularly with central bank digital currencies and some of the other market infrastructure and digital assets, that time has arrived, you know, where we no longer are searching. It is it's becoming part of the mainstream. I mean, is that a fair observation thing on my part? Yeah, and, and I think it is also understandable to, to to potentially, you know, look back the last five or six years and 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 think that maybe we're kind of walking around with a blockchain hammer looking for a nail. Um, you know, maybe it might be helpful just my own journey with with the blockchain space, where where I started, where we are now. It, it, in some ways, it has come a bit full circle. You know, I I stumbled upon Bitcoin back in 2013, coming from the FX world previously, yeah. and uh, it was it was it, it's an incredible thing to stumble upon, especially if you, back then when I was we were dealing with uh, very low vol uh, <laughs> currency markets to see this beautiful thing flying around everywhere. Yes. Um, but then you know getting down the rabbit hole for the underlying technology on the blockchain side, the the very first uh, application everyone thinks about is what Bitcoin potentially initially tried to be, which was which was this digital currency, unstoppable digital currency. Mm. Um, it sort of is morphed into about digital gold, probably more than digital currency. Um, and that was really where a lot of the focus had been, that value transfer. Uh, over the, I guess, the, the next few years, and R3 was part of this, there, did, there was a large hype cycle around enterprise blockchain and in crypto. Um, and interestingly, not a lot of that was focused back on the digital currency or payment side. But as you mentioned at the top of the segment, you know, it's the last few years, both as it really is a, a potentially a push from things like Facebook and Libra and others, but also really an understanding of central banks and market infrastructure of how they can use the technology, not just for the infrastructure needs, but more directly for monetary and fiscal policy and uh, payments and settlement, security settlement, all resolving back to a digital currency backed by the central bank. Mm. And these are... Conversation. These are things that started as conversations three, four years ago, and with R three, we were involved in some of the early ones with Bank of Canada, Monetary Authority, Singapore. But it's becoming much more real now, both on uh, the wholesale side, which which is probably more of what we'll talk about today, but also 
even on the retail side where it's moving beyond the experiment phase into, into implementation. Yeah. I, there's a, I wouldn't say famous. I would say it's more infamous story. <laughs> one of these previous podcasts about me trying to buy a beer with Bitcoin a couple of years ago. Um, and the, the, the transaction cost was quite significant is all I'd say at this moment in time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, where are we then with central bank digital currencies now? I mean, um, obviously, it's, it's not going to be a quick journey. And the fact that you've been talking about it for three or four years mm-hmm. or working on, you know, on a path three or four years indicates that. Where do we stand now, do you think, in terms of the development and um, of this infrastructure? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it is, it's actually very important that there has been time spent on it already because central banks will never be accused of moving too quickly on anything. And I think that's, I mean, that's purposeful, right? So they, they have to be very thoughtful because this isn't just a technology question. It's, it's a monetary policy question in a lot of cases. And, and, yeah. um, and so the beginnings of this had to start with, okay, can we get our head around this? Can we understand what the right models are to think about what a digital currency would look like? And what are the, some of the trade-offs and risk reward here? Um, and so a lot of that has been done. And I think I mentioned before, there was a big impetus. The, there, Bitcoin originally uh, sort of came up as a potential quote unquote threat to central banks and fiat currency. But if you speak to any central banker, they, they've long ago dismissed Bitcoin specifically as a threat to, to the, the monetary sovereignty of their country. Yeah. The, the introduction of the concept behind Libra as a supranational cross-border, potentially even store value medium of exchange, really sharpened the minds, I would say, yeah. of, uh, of central makers around the world. Um, but it wasn't pushing them from a standing start. They were already leaning in that direction. And so I think that's what's picked up. And so you, you start to see, you know, recently their uh, MAS uh, released their Ubin 5 report. So this has been the fifth wave of their, of their work. Uh, we have started to work with through Accenture with, uh, with Rick's Mike in Sweden to look at how can they potentially implement this retail digital currency because they're, they're worried about things like the death of cash, you know, the, the yeah. elimination of cash in, 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 the, in their economy. Um, and, you know, recently there's been lots of other interests, you know, a, from especially in Europe with Banque de France or even into the, to the Caribbean um, back to both China and the U.S., extremely focused on this, you know, as a backdrop of, of, um, uh, in effect, dollar sovereignty or, you know, the dollar reserve currency status and what the moves by China uh, within digital currency might do to, to potentially threaten that. So all this is coming to a head. And I would say, you know, we, we recently did a, a webinar at R3 with, where we had, you know, we had lots of these central banks, including IMF and, and the Bank of International Settlements. And, just the sheer volume of, of work and research coming out of these bodies is incredible. And the BIS recently uh, released a sentiment survey around the amount of times that digital currency is being mentioned in speeches by central bankers. And we all know that they, they inject policy through their speeches. And the, the, it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent in their official remarks. And interestingly, the remarks themselves have become increasingly positive to what the potential is for digital currency, central bank digital currency to do for the economies themselves, as opposed to what's the threat of something like Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. I think, so I think it is, it is, it is moves from an, an interesting experiments to more and more of an inevitability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's, it's something I've pointed out before that, you know, I mean, I cannot remember the last time I paid for anything with cash anyway, um, 
and especially in the COVID era where, you know, a lot right. of stores are saying, you know, you know, please tap and go. Um, but I guess it's a question of like formalizing that and putting it on a much grander scale, isn't it? And as in, as you say, this has monetary and fiscal policy implications. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so, uh, so different central banks have different mandates, right? So they're there, but they're broad, you know, they can the 80% similar across. Um, and of course they want to do no harm within their economies and their financial system. So they're very co- conscious of what does this mean for incumbents, both market infrastructure that, that potentially could be public private sort of in nature, but especially for commercial banks, you know, the last thing they want to do is, is introduce something that would potentially destroy commercial bank money or, or, uh, destabilize that environment. So that's what the things they're thinking through. And also, you know, this also fits into just, you know, back to the wholesale side that fits into the overall push to find uh, better ways of doing business, better, faster, cheaper, and lower risk. Um, that's sort of moved beyond just the front office side to the middle and back office. So it's very much around when you talk about wholesale central bank digital currency, it is a continuation of the and many decades move to improve the infrastructure um, while helping to, as much as possible, bring everyone along in the journey <laughs> to coordinate it. Because as we all know, so back, you know, I, I lived through a lot of transformation in my, in my previous life. Um, the, it, the technology is, is in a lot of ways the smallest part. It's, it's that coordination factor that's the, that's the hard part. And that's interesting because I mean, obviously we talk about, you know, a, a word used quite a lot is disruption or being disruptive. Yep. I mean, this, it strikes me this, this has the potential to be disruptive in the, on a wholesale level of the industry. If that's right, what sort of areas do you think would be challenged or you know, are targeted by you know, the deployment of this technology? So, I mean, if you think about the big macro trend here is what is, the, in effect, the threat to the, say, the sell side, right? So, yeah. so the large and larger commercial banks – um, are probably the most at risk because there's there's lots of trends here already as you mentioned around not having to use cash you know the interaction at the point of sale is through Apple Pay or through yeah. these large fintech these large large technology or fintech giants so I think the 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 correspondent banks uh, the money center banks are the ones that have probably the most at risk here um, as things evolve. Uh, and I think that's probably why you're seeing so much focus on it from that, that community. Um, so I think that from it, but also going back to the disruption, it is sort of like, um, the inspiration where I think central banks also know that they have to make a move, um, to be able to harness some of this, uh, technology because the market's moving that way, whether it's either in sort of payment networks that are moving to private, uh, private schemes, private networks. Yeah. Or you know how cryptocurrencies is is showing the way where where things can move. Mm. So, I guess a question for for those of us who are slightly challenged on occasions by technology, such as myself. <laughs> um, sure. How easy? I mean, it strikes me that you know the infrastructure that you know R three is created mm-hmm. is creating. Sorry, um, is potentially the easier part of this transformation. The big challenge listening to you, it strikes me, is actually changing people's attitudes and actually getting them to think about, you know, how we can do things differently. Yeah, it, I mean, usually is always that's always the biggest challenge. I would say that the, the one of the biggest breakthroughs in going back to the work that's been done on central bank digital currency is that 
probably the biggest thing needed was for everyone to just come together on a common understanding of what yeah. this is. And I think a lot has happened in the last year and a half um, across the central banks that we work with directly and, and also just a market participant. So I think that's been a huge step forward. Um, and the other thing that I think is quite interesting is that you're seeing not only central banks, but market infrastructure uh, start to come around to this. So these are the, 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 the CSDs and the other FMIs starting to not only understand the technology, but embrace it. Um, also, because if you think about FMIs and exchanges, what is, what is one of the, you mentioned before about like, what is, a, what is the real problem that blockchain can solve? What's the benefit it can bring? Digital currency is just one type of digital asset. So what we're seeing is that market infrastructure and exchanges are getting increasingly excited about blockchain technology because it can create more and more digital assets that are able to be listed and traded. So the more things you can create as a digital token that is provably scarce or unique means uh, the, more, the more things that have uh, higher velocity of trading and more fungibility um, and more fees. And so that's, I think, and there's and just... And also potentially more fun, depending on your perspective. But I think that that's that's a big that's a big trend that we're seeing, not just in the digital currency side, but also really on the digital asset side. As two old traders, I think we can both agree that when it's moving, it's fun. That's true. <laughs> uh, I, you mentioned financial market infrastructure there. I mean, so and obviously CLS is is yep. looking at this, you know, a blockchain technology quite closely, but what does it mean for that sort of market infrastructure? You know, how do you see that evolving? So, so CLS also happens to be an, an investor in, in R3 and, and obviously, you know, you think about a role that CLS plays, you know, they are literally at the center of yeah. the, of the FX market across the market participants and the central banks. Um, so they have been looking at this technology for five, six years now, uh, along with, you know, recently DTCC has, has made a couple of announcements and projects that they're working on, which are uh, really, if you really read them, it's, it's quite aggressive and impressive that what they're looking to potentially modernize uh, within their infrastructure. And, you know, we work at Deutsche Borsa and uh, working with Six Exchange in, in Switzerland. And you look at these, these incumbents, um, they're trying to understand how does this new technology reduce the risk or it potentially keep the risk flat to where they are now and reduce that potentially democratize access to, to, to different services. You go back to the CLS model. One of the big pushes that they've had over the last three, four years is how can they expand the amount of services they offer beyond just the, the, you know, the top 20 euro money banks or the top 80 or banks that are on their network. Um, so that's where they're trying to focus, but doing it, in concert with you know the 17, 18 central banks that they work with, it's quite the dance and quite the coordination play. But it comes back to you know this is coming back to the the ability to uh, uh, really get settlement when you need it or want it. So I think going back to what are the, some of the direct and hidden costs that that folks are trying to address. Uh, one thing that you know in my previous life I never thought about things like intraday liquidity ever. That was never even a topic. Um, and it's, it's, it's very front and center for things that CLS are trying to help the market address, but also that market participants are looking to address as well. So, I mean, you mentioned a couple of exchanges that you guys are working with at the moment. What sort of um, opportunities are you looking at for these type of firms? Because obviously what you're talking about there, you know, in the Deutsche Bourses and NASDAQs, the six exchanges, are, you know, what would probably be looked upon as being very traditional 
you know, bastions of society type uh, businesses. <laughs> right. um, what sort of opportunities are there for firms like that? So, uh, so I give, you know, I give th these firms a lot of credit for thinking this way where, you know, in, in a, in a, yeah. one example would be NASDAQ on, on the technology side, their digital asset suite, which they're working with us and, and using Corda, which is our, our, our blockchain technology as part of that. Um, it is, it, you know, the, the good part here is that they're commercially motivated. This is not innovation. This is a commercial endeavor. Yeah. Right. Um, and so from a NASDAQ perspective, they see the direction of travel for uh, increasing amounts of, of tradable digital assets. And that could be potentially uh, quote unquote, non-traditional. And I'm not talking about, you know, Dogecoin or some other cryptocurrency. No, no. These are things like non-bankable assets or things that previously potentially could not be packaged up as a financial asset before that they're, that's what they're looking to uh, service. And increasingly, what we're seeing is there's this, there's sort of like this this blurring of uh, primary markets as well. So there's lots of secondary exchanges that are looking at this, and also going back to really peeling it back all the way to the promise of one of the things that I got very interested in, and also one of the reasons I was super excited to start my career in an OTC market, which was very potentially peer to peer. What this is really trying to allow for is more and more of a peer to peer. Uh, asset exchange uh, and marketplaces that can pop up everywhere, but still at the same time you have that that uh, maybe reduced risk or that 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 um, understanding uh, that w that asset that you're trading actually is truly provably digitally scarce. So I think that there's an excitement here, but it's but the, really what's important for us as a commercial entity is that this is. Uh, top line revenue uh, motivated. These are new markets they're trying to enter into uh, and new services they want to offer to their customers. And I think that's the biggest difference for me in the enterprise blockchain space versus five years ago, which was really five years ago was, why are you talking to me about something that sounds like Bitcoin, get out of my office, this is too dangerous. Yeah. Or to the next evolution was, oh, this is really interesting. My board told me I have to have a view on what blockchain is. To now, it's, okay, how do I increase my top line? How do I reach my customers? Uh, in different ways. That's the conversations we're having. I think it's very, very interesting. And it also, it doesn't hurt that the largest central banks in the world are also uh, very interested in it as well. So it, it sort of leads to a very, very nice uh, swell of momentum for, for the, whole, the whole space. Yeah, because I mean, it strikes me, I mean, your last point there's very pertinent in the fact that, you know, every time I hear people talking, you know, new tradable assets and things like that, my mind immediately goes to the obstacle of regulation. Mm -hmm. If you've got the central banks involved, then maybe that just smooths that path just a little bit, you know, with national and, and even global regulators. How much of a challenge do you think it, it is? Well, it, <laughs> it's always uh, something to focus on, you know, and, and actually, you know, from the R3 perspective, because of our, our backgrounds in the regulated financial markets, yeah. We understood that you want to have quite, you want to have conversations earlier rather than later with the regulators. <laughs> so, you know, regulator central banks, we've probably met with over 150 worldwide and it is around bringing them on that journey and having them understand what the, what the potentially, how can either number one, is this happening? No matter what, is this inevitable? Number two, how can they have it fit or amend what they're tr trying to regulate. Number three, which is also really interesting, how can they actually potentially use it directly to help them do their jobs better? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why 
uh, that that's what we've experienced, but you have to have these conversations early because, you know, as before we you know, started recording, one of the big things, anytime you're talking about blockchain topic, uh, it can get, you can get in the weeds pretty quickly with certain things. Mm. Um, and you can really, since it became so uh, popular or sort of in the public eye so soon, we sort of gravitate to think about the technology. But what the regulators are interested in is what does this mean for them? Yeah. What, is, what, what is it actually going to solve as opposed to, you know, what the actual technology implementation is? And, and so it's really been gratifying that we're, we are having those types of conversations with, with the regulators uh, now versus, say, three, four years ago. Oh, definitely. Yes, I mean, I can wholeheartedly support you on that one. <laughs> Getting involved <laughs> early, yes. I, yes. So just, just to close this out then, Todd, I mean, we are talking about um, – yeah, some fundamental changes. Yep. But what does what do you how do you envisage markets looking in the years ahead as this evolution takes place? Um, you know, what would you say would be the high level changes you'd expect to see? So, you know, I do think it, it really is not changing the course of, of of things. It's really just accelerating it. So, you know, going back to I remember my first day on the desk in 1996, walking in and there was there was many dollar mark traders as the eye could see down the desk, right? <laughs> um, and you know, flash forward to today, it's really you know, there's basically it's a it's a man and a dog and a supercomputer on the desk. It's that's yeah. you know, th- things have, are evolving. What what blockchain technology is enabling is the uh, is really the breaking down of these silos of buy side and sell side. The breaking down of of distinctions between things like primary issuance of an asset to the secondary trading of that asset. It's going to blur the lines of things of like public versus private markets, listed versus OTC. So if you think about it, you know, as we as we hopefully evolve and implement this, what it will potentially bring you is benefits of say uh, exchange based or, or listed trading, as well as the benefits of of an OTC marketplace. So more assets, more counterparties you can trade with, all that in in the back end settle with lower risk and lower fees. So that's the hope. Um, that we're at least a part of that overall macro trend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, it does drive me that, you know, as you say, um, as we can both vouch for, you know, when it comes to markets, you can buy, sell or do nothing. Uh, right. it's, it's what happens around it. There's actually where the real evolution takes place. Cause um, I can remember my first trade being on the telex and now there's one for the teenagers. Right. <laughs> That was a little before my time, Colin. Yeah, I would. Believe me, I think it was before most people's time. Um, yeah, I mean, Todd, thank you very much. It's fascinating. I, I do think that um, finally we can sort of look at it and say that you know, blockchain is becoming a um, an integral part of the financial markets infrastructure, which I don't think we could have said three, four years ago. Um, Definitely. And, and it's great to get your insight into where we are going with this. And hopefully we can um, revisit this subject with you again um, in the uh, weeks, months, and years to come. Yeah, that would be great. I'd look forward to it. Great. Um, well, thank you for your time today. Um, to our listeners, thanks again for listening. Um, we'll be back next week as usual. Um, have a great week. Thanks very much.